I think the functional movement systems as a whole did help us gain a, a sharper lens to view movement from and a, a nice systematic way to look at it. But when you marry yourself too strongly to the system or the guru, and you don't consider the individual in front of you, that's when you have problems. Screening became popular in the early 2000s with tools like the FMS and SMFA. Well, today we had Travis Pollan on the podcast. He's a PhD in rehab science and also a degree in biomechanics and movement. He's a wonderful person to talk to about this as he goes through the history of screening and what's not useful to us at the moment and what still is useful and what he looks for. I hope you enjoyed this episode. My name is Michael Risk and this is Physio Explained. Travis, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Michael. We're going to talk about screening. I was going to ask you to start with what does screening mean to you and where has it kind of come from and where are we now? So it's a big question, almost a little bit of history and then what you perceive it to be now and, and how that's progressed over time. I'll start with like the, the scientific definition of screening, which I happen to have in front of me. So if I'm reading, it sounds like I'm reading it. I am reading it. It's a strategy for detecting a future condition in a person who doesn't currently have signs and symptoms of that condition. Yeah. So it's kind of like fortune telling, like you're looking into your crystal ball and you're saying, okay, I'm looking at this person now, seeing what how they're presenting, and then I'm trying to predict what will happen to them in the future in terms of illness or injury. So in the context of physiotherapy, we're usually talking about some sort of movement screening, some sort of testing movement and seeing, okay, are they at risk for impaired performance or increased risk of injury, right? And so when we're talking about movement screening, we're trying to identify people with risk factors for injury or decreased performance in an athletic context based on the way that they move. And so it's kind of like, all right, we're going to, like, let's say we're, we're a football club and we're testing all our athletes in the preseason. We're seeing how they perform on these tests and we're seeing if they're physically prepared to engage in their sport. So when, when this movement screening paradigm came out, let's say early 2000s to mid 2000s, the big idea was let's look at the way people move on a series of body weight tasks and see if we can predict who's going to get injured based on the way that they move. And so there was some early research on the functional movement screen that showed that athletes who performed poorly on the functional movement screen which was below a 14, a score of 14 out of 21, were at increased risk of suffering a, an injury over the course of the season. It was uh, American football players. And so the idea was, okay, we can market this to physiotherapists and strength and conditioning professionals and personal trainers, and this is going to revolutionize the industry. We can predict injuries. So we're going to fix the way that people, people move. We're going to identify their dysfunctions, and we're going to correct them. And then we're going to prevent all these injuries. But the more when more research we did, the more we found that wasn't wasn't really so good at predicting injury, right? There were a lot of false positives and false negatives, which is to say that even if on the whole, there is a slightly increased risk of injury for people who perform poorly on a movement screen, you cannot predict on an individual basis who is going to get injured and who's not going to. And the reason for that is kind of obvious once you think about it. And it's because there are a lot of other risk factors for injury besides movement, you know, the way that somebody moves. 
Their previous injury we know is the biggest risk factor of future injury, age, sex, BMI, psychosocial variables. There are so many things that can, uh, you know, poor sleep. There's so many things that can increase risk of injury that if you're just trying to look at one factor and say, okay, well, this person's going to get injured because they scored a nine out of 21 on the functional movement screen or whatever screen you're using. Uh, that's just not practical. So fast forward a few years and we came out with other movement screens, more comprehensive ones, ones that were using 3D motion capture and force plates and uh, trying to piece it together more rigorously from a, a biomechanical standpoint or, or just doing a more comprehensive look at somebody. And no matter what you do, we're sort of seeing the same thing. It's like, okay, some of these tests are risk factors, meaning that a person does have increased risk of injury, but that doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to predict injury because no single risk factor is that strongly associated with injury that we can identify people on an individual basis. Then let's say fast forward a few more years and we're at, we're at the point where the pendulum has swung the other way where we're like, okay, well, uh, we don't need to do any sort of screening at all because it's useless. And, uh, you know, functional movement screen is a waste. We don't need to do any of that. We can't predict injury. And I think hopefully we're, we're now at the point where we can kind of go back to the middle and say, no, it's not, it's not useless. Like there are, there are certain reasons might, why we might want to do it. We might, for example, like the first question, if somebody comes to your physiotherapy clinic, first question you're going to ask them, maybe not the first question, but you're going to ask them what hurts. <laughs> why are you here today? Right. And they'll tell you, okay, I have pain in my shoulder. Right. Well, you're going to do some sort of, based on what they tell you, you're going to do some sort of objective assessment and see what movements hurt them. And maybe you find something provocative that they didn't mention or something at a different joint or whatever. So you're getting one good reason to watch the way somebody moves in a somewhat systematic way would be, let's un uncover pain problems that this person might not have mentioned to you in the subjective portion of the interview, right? And so you can, you can identify issues, you can, you know, painful problems that they maybe didn't mention. Uh, you can identify potential red flags, you know, that something really, really jumps out at you when you're watching the move. Um, but it's also like a quick way to look at a lot of things at once. So like a, if you went back to prior to the 2000s, where the before these movement screens were really common, the more common way of assessing someone was like joint range of motion, like isolated ranges of motion, manual muscle testing, that sort of thing. Well, if you look at movements, you can see a lot of joints working at once, the coordination of those joints. And so if those look good, you can kind of say, well, you, your joints must be working well because you're moving well. Versus if you only looked at the joints, you don't necessarily know that the person moves well. But the, the nuance of this is that the, some sort of cookie cutter thing that two guys came up with like in their PT office versus, okay, I'm going to ask the person, well, what are your goals? What activities and movements are meaningful to you? What do you want to be able to do that you can't do now? And then let's tailor the things that we look at to that person's goals as opposed to saying, well, everybody should be able to squat with their feet hip width apart or shoulder width apart, toes straight forward, arms overhead, and hip crease below the knee. Like that's not relevant to everybody, right? So I think over time, we've come to a more nuanced understanding, or I, or I hope we have, or I hope podcasts like this help, help people go shift from one of the extremes to more towards the middle.
it was a fun five years learning the FMS and then having this real strict criteria you could follow and giving people a score and and then like basing your treatment off that. And I think it's part of the identity crisis of some younger physiotherapists where it's like, in a way, there was safety in that because this is what you did. This is what you looked at. This is how you scored them. And then here was your treatment. But um, it was kind of the easy way out, wasn't it? It's nice in that way. And like you said, for newer clinicians, either whether it's the FMS or their selective functional movement assessment, which is supposed to be used more clinically, it's cookie cutter, but it's not bad. It's like, this is a, a helpful lens to view movement from or to view the body from through movement patterns instead of through ice, more isolated things. The problem is when you really marry yourself to it, and there are many problems with it, talking to somebody you know, about their, especially from like a personal training context, it was used as a selling point. Like, okay, we're going to diagnose your dysfunctions and then you're going to have to come to me for me to fix you. And it's the same in the physiotherapy context. That's not how we want to be framing our interactions with people because that creates dependency. It creates nocebos. And so there are some negatives to this, but I think the functional movement systems as a whole did help us gain a, a sharper lens to view movement from and a, a nice systematic way to look at it. But when you marry yourself too strongly to the system or the guru and you don't consider the individual in front of you, that's when you have problems, right? So so like you said, it's like, well, we, we rooted our whole identity in this thing. And then when we realized it was problematic because like, well, if people know uh, what the scoring criteria are for the test, they can score better just by knowing what you're looking for. Well, you're at that point, your thing is invalid, right? So then it's like, well, we can't use that. Well, what do we do now? It's like, no, we can we can use some elements of that. We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's a great distinction. I, I never regretted doing the FMS because of that lens it gave me as a new grad. And it gave me some kind of framework to start looking at the body. And I found that helpful. So that's a, it's a good point you make. But I want to bring you to what do we do clinically now? And, and how do you use it? An example I literally came across this morning was the old um, overhead squat with a with a dowel. And I, I remember thinking, yeah, I used to look at that a lot and then I stopped. But it used to tell us things like, could people maintain thoracic neutral or thoracic extension? And could they maintain that as they went to a squat? And could they maintain that with shoulder flexion as they went into a squat? I would love your opinion on something like that or a similar screening you still use. and then. What can you actually infer from that? And what do you infer from that on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. So I guess I'll start by saying, in my own assessments, I first consider the person in front of me and think about what they're, or ask them, you know, what are your goals and what do you want to be able to do? And what are you having challenges with now? And ultimately, I need, I need the assessment or screen or whatever you want to call it. And there, there are distinctions between those things, but for... <laughs> For the purposes of uh, simplicity, we can say that they're the same. But like, I need it to tell me what movements or what really what exercises the person is ready to do right now. And so, so if it's a physical therapy context, they're coming in with pain, and there are certain movements that are going to they're going to have pain with. And we need to wait for those things to calm down before we can really add load to them, right? So. It's kind of about selecting and deselecting movements or identifying, okay, here are the movement, the general movement categories that I want to fulfill. I want people 
If it's a shoulder thing, I want them to be pushing things and pulling things in multiple planes. So what doesn't hurt right now? Great, we can do those things. We can do those with added load. We can do those with added speed, challenge, whatever. And what things are painful right now? Well, maybe we temporarily want to avoid those ranges of motions that are causing pain, but we also know that it's okay to poke into a little bit of pain. So that's like the graded exposure thing where we're exposing them a little bit to pain and finding out, okay, what was that on a scale of one to 10? As long as it wasn't more than like a three or four, that's okay. And also, did you have pain the next day? Did it, did it make things worse or did you go back to your baseline? And so, so it's really about finding the point on the continuum of all these movement patterns, the pushing and the pulling for the upper body, the hinging, the squatting, the lunging for the lower body, the locomotion. What part of the load continuum and the speed continuum can they work at? So maybe it's that they are having to do sit, like sit to stand on a chair because they're unfamiliar with a squat or they, um, they haven't done a squat in a while and they need to build some confidence and competency in that. Or maybe they're already ready to do squats with the barbell. But it, the idea is, okay, let's, let's do the, the assessment and figure out where they are on the continuum so we can create a plan for them. And so maybe it is that you're doing that overhead squat because like you said, it gives you a lot of information. You can look at the ankles, the knees, the hips, um, the shoulders, the T-spine, all in one swoop. But the downside is that if they perform poorly or they don't meet your whatever your criteria are for that thing, then you have to dig deeper into it. And that's where the clinical expertise comes in to say, okay, this is what I'm seeing. And now I need to look separately at the ankle or the hip or the shoulder or the T-spine. We call that breakout testing, but it's just the initial assessment is like, okay, we're going to throw some broad or general or global movement patterns at you see how you do. And then based on your performance on those, then we'll drill down and identify, is this a mobility issue at a joint or a stability issue, or your joints are fine and you just need practice with that movement. It's a good clinical framework that you provided there. You can start broad and it may allow you to look at multiple joints. And then it also may allow you to drill a little bit deeper. And I guess I wanted your your quick opinion on is it that we can't infer your pain or your condition is because when I look at you do this overhead squat, you're stuck in thoracic kyphosis and you have no shoulder flexion, right? So we know that we can't infer that that is the cause of the pain. Is it more that, well, we could increase your envelope of function there. We, we could hopefully get you more thoracic extension and therefore get you more shoulder flexion. And then when you reach for something in the cupboard, you can probably do it now with a bit more envelope of function. That's the way I've been reasoning it. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think the interesting thing that the research is showing, especially when you're like you're talking about these these interventions that are targeting a lot of qualities at once, and the you know injuries get prevented after the intervention compared to the control group, but oftentimes the biomechanics don't change. Mm. So it's like, well, we thought we were improving the person's thoracic extension to give them more comfort into overhead range of motion. And if you don't actually measure that, you can't really be sure that you changed anything about their range of motion. But if they're reporting that they have less pain doing the things that they need, that's great. And that's what we care about that outcome. But maybe it was just something else, <laughs> some other non-specific effect of exercise or improved confidence or decreased fear or whatever that led to the change. And so it's, it's interesting to be able to tease that out because part of what that means to me is like, 
well, like let's say back pain, we can do something more general. It doesn't have to be motor control exercises of the lumbar spine, yeah. activating the TA and the multifidus to, because walking or general exercise seems to elicit the same positive effect on somebody's pain and function. Yeah, that's a, that's a good review there is that when you do the screen, it can be simplistic in looking at range of motion. And then there are those studies that show you didn't actually change the biomechanics, but there was an outcome change. So Travis, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed your clinical framework of, you know, the interview and then still using a screen and then going a little bit deeper and how you combine all of that. Uh, where can people find you, Travis? Uh, if they look me, my website is my name, travispollen.com. Uh, they'll be able to find me there. And I'm also on Instagram. My uh, handle is fitness underscore pollinator. There. Perfect. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Michael.